Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of This Week in Doom. Joining me to bring that doom is everybody's favourite green chicken, Doomberg. Hi, mate. Grant, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine. Always a pleasure to uh, to talk to a doomy chicken. Well, I can see from the background that you're still in sunny Australia, uh, and so I, I must say that I'm quite jealous of uh, of your current weather. Well, uh, listen, it's, it's a little sunny today, but um, let me tell you, it has been... Biblical. I mean, you may have seen on the news, the floods yeah. we've had down here have been remarkable. And not, not just kind of in, in Queensland and northern New South Wales, but you know, right here in Sydney, um, the rains have just been, uh, it's just unbelievable. I mean, I've, I've never seen anything like it. Um, you can thank La Nina for that, sitting off the coast of uh, Australia for months now. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy down here, actually. Well, I would say we've also had a flood of, um, of macroeconomic and geopolitical news, uh, which is... Uh, led to a wonderful opportunity for you to put out some amazing content. Uh, did you see what I did there with a nice pivot? Um, uh, you see, you, yeah. you just ruined it by saying, see what I did there. Everyone was sitting there marveling at it, and now you've just you've pulled back the curtain. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's like the magician who shows you how to do the trick, yeah. Right. Uh, but uh, we were chatting before we we turned the uh, record switch on. You know, you've, had, you've just released a couple of remarkable podcasts, and I, you know, the Luke Groman episode, and then followed right on top of that with uh, Peter Zihan. Maybe uh, give us a few comments about... Um, the impact of those podcasts and um, really just some of the profound things that, that were said. Oh yeah. You know, it's um, I, I really wanted to talk to those two guys and I had to shuffle the, the schedule around COVID finally caught up with me. So I had, I was um, knocked out for a bit with that, but um, yeah, you know, they, they, they were, there were two guys that I felt it was important to talk to at this particular point in time, given the war on Peter's front, obviously, and given the, the sanctions on Luke's front and, and, you know, Luke, let's start with Luke because Luke's been a buddy of mine for, almost a decade now. And, um, you know, I'm a big fan of, of what he does and, and how he thinks and the, and the work he puts into building a, a really coherent narrative around what's been a very tricky set of puzzle pieces to put in place. And, and, and most people haven't seen them the way Luke's seen them. He's had a very clear picture of this for the longest time. And, um, you know, Luke was the inspiration for a presentation I gave a number of years ago called uh, Get It, Got It Good, which uh, is it's on the website. You can find that on the About page at the bottom there. And and this this nexus between gold and oil and the dollar and, um, you know, the, the, the energy-producing countries. And, and, you know, what we've seen happen with these sanctions is um, a whole bunch of those puzzle pieces get put in place all at the same time. And it's, and it's really changed the outlook if you understand Luke's framework. And, you know, having followed it as I do, as soon as I saw those moves, particularly the sanctioning of the, of the Russian Central Bank, as soon as I saw that, I thought, wow, this, this changes everything. And that, that's really the, the thrust of a piece I'm in the middle of writing now, which I'll publish on Sunday. And it's also the, the thrust of, you know, the piece you wrote a couple of weeks ago or maybe 10 days ago on the, the economic singularity. You know, what you wrote about there really encapsulated a lot of the things that we spoke about, a lot of the things that I'm thinking about to write. So, it's a, you know, given that I'm going to publish that 
this Sunday. I'm curious to hear the response to your piece, which which touches on many of the themes that I'm going to broaden out around. Yeah, no, and I, and I it's one of those. I wish I'd heard the Luke Roman podcast before we publish it because he sort of circled a few squares for us, as one might say. But uh, the piece that we wrote uh, on the cusp of an economic singularity captured um, what we believe is is just the profound nature, as you said, of not only the sanctioning of the Russian bank central reserves, but also the the targeting of the oligarchs uh, for confiscation, not just sort of freezing of assets, but literally confiscating them. And this follows on the heels of Justin Trudeau's activities up in Canada and sort of the redefining of property rights. And, and as you know, um, history teaches us that when we have profound shifts in the relationship with the citizenry and their property, these types of shifts have lasting consequences. And they always sort of happen during crisis. You know, the, the boogeyman is always justifiably punished, but the aftershocks of those decisions often fall on the populace, onto me and to you and, and to our friends and family. And uh, it just struck us that, um, of course, you know, who could be unopposed to the the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and and who wouldn't want to punish Vladimir Putin using the full extent of all of our capabilities. But as sort of, you know, Orwell would teach us in 1984, the time to sort of stand up and say, well, wait a minute, this might not be such a good idea is during because after it's too late. And um, the cusp of an economic singularity was a piece that went super viral for us. Uh, it's our by far our most widely read piece. It got reproduced in various platforms. I think when you add up all of the views, it was well over 300,000. And I think that's because it tapped similar fears that many of our listeners might be feeling. Like we understand the need to take extreme measures to, to, to you know, um, confront what is undoubtedly an extreme situation, but the consequences of that are, are, are really profound. And, and if we don't think about and point them out now, then it might be too late by the time we get around to it. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's a, it, it is a fascinating time to be alive, and that, and that was why I wanted to also speak to Peter Zion, you know, because the the war in Ukraine obviously um, again reshapes so many things, and, and I think the the financial aspects of it that, that you and I have focused on, obviously, are are second order events. Uh, we're talking about you know, boots on the ground in other countries in in the middle of Europe here, which is something I look, I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime. And, you know, Peter's thoughts on, on this were, were really interesting to me because there's a narrative around China and Russia particularly that has become consensus over a, a long period of time. And, you know, when I first read Peter's book, Disunited Nations, a few years ago, I, I, we were speaking at a conference together, he and I, and he gave a presentation on it and when it had just come out and I bought a copy of the book and read it thereafter. And it really opened my eyes. You know, Peter goes through and grades each country, gives each country a report card in terms of its strengths and weaknesses. And what I found when I went through it was a completely different set of countries which one would think will be reasonably successful in the next couple of decades. And, you know, it definitely wasn't Russia and it definitely wasn't China. You know, in China, if you look at Peter's work, has a, a bunch of constraints that aren't really talked about anywhere else, um, you know, People tend to talk about China as as uh, uh, ready to surpass the United States, and um, you know it's the, it's a big threat, and it's all these things that China has become in many people's minds in the West. But Peter's very simplistic framework, when you run through it, it really makes you think about some of the the more hard coded problems that the country has in terms of geography, in terms of demographics, in terms of access to you know blue water. 
it's fascinating. And, and so you know, I, I've always enjoyed talking to Peter over the years, not just because he's great company, but also he has a really interesting perspective on this stuff. And, and you look, it's a perspective that, and I, and I addressed this in the interview, leads to people throwing the charge at him. Oh, you're just, you know, one of these American exceptionalism guys and you're a stooge. And I get, every time I talk to Peter, I get emails from people saying he's a CIA plant and all this kind of stuff because he is, uh, you know, positive on America. But the, the positivity that he has around America is based in things like geography and demographics, which aren't necessarily political, um, you know, and, and the points he makes of, about... Depth of ports, you know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. depth of ports, um, the river yeah. system. You know, geographically, the United States is a country which is without peer, really, in terms of its location, in terms of its borders, all the things that Peter talks about. So to dismiss him as a, as a you know, as a US cheerleader is really, I think, to misunderstand the things that he's cheerleading about. These are these are a, a, a natural forces. They're not political. So I just found it really interesting to hear his thoughts on this. And, um, you know, it, it, it certainly makes you realise that the reasons Russia went into Ukraine may be because there's a big uh, stopwatch clicking in the background and, and they, they may not have this opportunity again for some time. But it also gives you a different perspective on what this means for other countries, particularly China. I, you know, I don't know what you thought about, Peter. I'm curious to talk to you about that and, and hear what, yeah. what you thought of his of his uh, words. Yeah, well, we certainly wouldn't claim to be in the same category as a, as a Peter Zihan as it pertains to our knowledge of China. But uh, in, prepar in preparing for this podcast, I went back and found all the old copies of my passports and I counted um, 41 stamps. Uh, I, I basically traveled to China quarterly for the better part of a decade. And um, I feel like I have a lot of friends and a fair amount of knowledge in the area. And the one thing that always struck me was people in the West don't quite comprehend the fact that the Chinese Communist Party solves for the stability of the rule of the Chinese Communist Party. And by far their greatest fear is food inflation. And it's unclear to me how supporting Vladimir Putin overtly in his invasion of the Ukraine serves that fundamental need. And in fact, one could argue, as Zihan did on your podcast, that um, whether they might have supported a quick incursion that, you know, uh, allowed Putin to um, roll over uh, Ukraine in the way he did Crimea, perhaps they bit off a little bit more than they thought they were going to have to chew with this. And you see already a little bit of stepping back, it seems, you know, the abstaining from the votes in the UN and the realization that maybe um, this is going to lead to a cascading series of events that fundamentally threatens the thing that the CCP cares the most about, which is the stability of the rule of the CCP domestically and the potential second and third order effects swinging back into the face of, of Xi and, and to the Communist Party. And I think um, what we're seeing now as the rest of the world begins to realize that the number one and number five exporter of wheat are effectively offline and that the, you know, the, the price of commodities has skyrocketed and and, and countries are beginning to implement protectionist policies, and we all know where that goes. And, and as Zihan points out, the depth of the reliance on imports for both energy and food in China is pretty profound. And I'm I, I going to be very curious to see how the Chinese behave as the war in Ukraine draws out. It's certainly going on much longer than many people thought. Um, the economic sanctions have been deeper and more profound than many people thought. And uh, I suspect that the Communist Party might be beginning to regret it's um, perceived support of Vladimir Putin's adventures. Well, it's certainly, um, I think the, the, the sanctions response is certainly going to make the Chinese pause and think very, very carefully about any designs they may have had on Taiwan in the near future. Yes, indeed. Um, the economic geopolitical system is distinctly nonlinear. It's impossible to predict 
but we are undoubtedly living several decades in the, in the period of weeks, as the old expression goes. Yeah, uh, I think it was Lenin, wasn't it, who said that? I seem to remember, <laughs> but uh, ironically. Anyway, well, listen, um, we have a guest joining us shortly who is uh, off the beaten path for, for you and I, and we're both incredibly excited to get to talk to Kyla Scanning. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about Kyla? Yeah, Kyla is a um, really a brilliant content creator. And, you know, one of the things that we think about all the time is is sort of how the policies of today will affect the generations of tomorrow. And, and in many ways, Kyla has done a remarkable job of tapping into the zeitgeist of her current generation. She's in her early 20s. She's a prolific content creator. She makes some of the funniest <laughs> um, videos that you'll find on Twitter. Um, she does this remarkable sort of encapsulation of, of capturing the zeitgeist of the news events in a way that is both educational and frankly, quite brilliantly funny. Um, really somebody we're, we've been trying to get on the show now for several weeks as we've sort of worked with schedules and, and really a brilliant young lady. And, and it's going to be a, a discussion that I know the audience will uh, thoroughly enjoy. Yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, the part of the mission of this was to was to bring new content creators to the audience and let them get access to people that they wouldn't normally have seen. And now uh, it, it's it's very difficult to avoid Kyla's TikTok videos these days because they they litter my Twitter feed, and each one is, I think, better than the last. So it's going to be interesting to, as you say, to to have a chat with someone who who is in a different generation to you and I is uh, is insanely bright and and understands the world of content creation. So, um, what do you say we talk to Kyla? Absolutely, let's do it. Kyla, welcome to This Week in Doom. So good to have you join us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. We've, uh, Doomy and I have been looking forward to this for a while. We've uh, we've loved your content, both of us. And uh, we were sitting there going through kind of people we'd love to sit and have a chat to. And both of us went, we've got to get Kyra. We have to get Kyra. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, no, it's it's an honor to be here. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so so listen. Um, you you kind of come out of nowhere, like this shooting star that's come out of nowhere and is is littering everybody's Twitter feed. So, I, what we'd love to do is um is is to get a sense of your background. So, why don't you walk us through that? Um, take all the time you need, and we'll interrupt you in a mindless fashion at various points along the way. I'm sure. Yeah, no, that that sounds great. Um, thank you for the the kind words. Yeah, some of it has been a little bit unexpected. I, I didn't expect people to resonate with the videos so much, but it's been really fun. Um, so yeah, I guess on me, I grew up in Kentucky, so outside of Louisville, which is the biggest city there. Went to school in Kentucky, majored in finance, econ, and data analytics, and left Kentucky for basically the first time to go to Los Angeles and work for Capital Group, a pretty big mutual fund manager. Um, so I was in their early career program there and ended up leaving them about a year ago during the pandemic to join a company called OnDeck. And I spun out their investment education arm there um, and then left to do this like content stuff full time. I've been writing online for a while. So I started trading options when I was in high school and sort of like wrote about it online back then, um, kept that blog all throughout college. Um, and yeah, I just sort of have been writing for a long time, started the videos when all the games stopped, stuff was happening because there was a lot of really bad information on TikTok. And I was like, you know, who would be good to save the world on this me? Uh, so I started making the videos and it, it really resonated with people, which was really awesome. Um, and now I have a Substack uh, where I just do like weekly updates on stuff and then just write about different things that I find interesting. And then I have my YouTube channel um, and then I have my TikTok where I post almost daily market updates. Um, and I'm on Instagram as well and Twitter. 
uh, as well too. So yeah, just kind of across the board, trying to cover as many bases as I can in a podcast, which is just my YouTube, but clipped. Yeah. Fascinating stuff, Kyle. And welcome to the show. Big, huge fan of your work and, um, you know, found you on, on Twitter and have since explored some of your other content. I know to, to, to the demographic of our listeners, um, many of them are probably wondering what it means to be a full-time content creator. Like how does one even make money on a platform like TikTok or Instagram? And you're obviously um, much closer to the, to the new generation of investors than, than either Grant or, or myself. And, and very curious to understand sort of how this came about. You'd mentioned, so have you taken this education task on and, and I get the sense that maybe the popularity of your TikTok account took on a life of its own. Can you walk us through sort of how that happened and how do young people make money on these platforms? Because I, Lord knows my kids are on them all day and, and, I, and it baffles me. Yeah. Oh, so I don't have actually the best answer in the world for this. Um, so I don't really think of myself as a, like a pure form content creator. I think of myself more as a synthesizer. Um, I guess the videos are sort of content creation, but with regards to actual monetization, there's pretty much three ways that you can make money online. You can make it through your audience. You can make it through brand partnerships, or you can make it through the platform. I don't make any money through TikTok. It's very difficult to make money through TikTok. Only like the top 1% are really able to make any money at all. I don't make any money through Instagram. Um, So most of my revenue comes from brand partnerships, which is really fun because there's a lot of companies out there that want their story told, but it's a little bit difficult to translate it to maybe a younger audience or an audience that's not as familiar with their products, like different types of ETFs. Uh, So that's kind of how I make my money is through translating different products to my audience and helping them understand how these things can play a role in their portfolio and then just helping them understand like broad market concepts too. So partnerships are how I make most of my money. Tell a lot of creators that I know make most of their money. Um, and then you can do a, a subscription model as well, but that's more audience-based just also. So, yeah. So, so listen, take us back to the, the GameStop AMC stuff, the craziness of, of a couple of years ago now. It's hard to believe it's a couple of years ago. Um, to talk us through what you saw and and what it was about that that kind of led you to to take this path. Yeah. So I was actually still at Capital Group during that time and was sitting on a high-yield credit desk. And just, it was so different how people around me at Capital Group were talking about it versus my friends. And it just felt like there was a very big disconnect between you know how institutions understood stuff. Obviously, like that's kind of the deal with finances. Like institutions understand things very differently than retail investors do. Um, so I ended up leaving Capital Group around that time. And for me, it was just about like, like clearly people are very interested in investing right? Like there's a little bit of crossover between gambling investing, especially in in the GameStop era. But I think that most people are just like, wow, like this is something to explore. This is something unique and interesting. And it was sort of like this big, I guess it was an attempt to be a middle finger to, I think the institutions, right? Like, oh, you're going to do X, Y, Z, and we're going to do this back at you. So I think that there was a lot of um, power behind the retail investor during that time, but it like uh, uh, on a broader brushstroke, I think it was just a big signal that um, people sort of, or maybe institutions kind of underestimated the interest of retail investors and wanting to be a little bit more involved with the investing world. Yeah. So, so Kyle, I was wondering, you know, when I think of TikTok and I think of sort of investment videos, I think of crypto world and, um, you know, the Discord chat rooms and um, scam coins and pump and dumps and rug pulls. And I'm wondering how it is that you've been able to build such a large audience, you know, over 100,000 followers on TikTok um, when your primary objective is just sort of seems very 
it's it's humorous. It's very very sort of on point, but it's also focused predominantly on education. I mean, any strategies you've used or just sort of um, comments to that effect? Because it's really fascinating that such a purely sort of informational educational account could grow so quickly. Well. <laughs> So it's actually, it, my TikTok account is sort of small by TikTok standards um, because, because it's more focused on education versus like here, you can make a hundred X your money, uh, follow me for more. Like I, I don't do any of that stuff. And that's a really fast way to, like we see it on Twitter all the time. Like that's a super fast way to grow followers if, if you can promise things like that, quote unquote promise. Um, so for me, like it's just, I, you know, I just am like, hey, this is what's going on. And I started to incorporate more artistic integrity I think into the design of the videos. And I think that's been interesting for people from like an educational perspective, but then also just like consuming financial content perspective. Like I don't, I was thinking about this the other day, like I don't think a lot of people kind of think of finance as an art. <laughs> and I feel like investing is an art in sort of like markets themselves can be very artful, but we don't sort of talk about it in that way. So my whole goal with that and sort of like making educational content that reflects that is to really focus on like telling it in a way that it's not coming across as like very dry. Like it's not just focused on like the pure quantitative aspect of it, but like here's something that's, you know, can be really, really magical almost as well. So uh, I think that kind of helps from the absurdity perspective with growth. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of talk a little bit about, about your style Um, because uh, how did that evolve? It's a very unique way of, trying to do things with your with your TikTok videos you know there's there's nothing else out there like them how, how did you settle on that what was the evolution of coming up with that particular style of content yeah so like at first I was very awkward and it, like if you go back to my very old TikTok videos like I'm just super awkward and I <laughs> it's very uncomfortable and you can like I the poor audience is probably uncomfortable watching it too uh, so for me it was just kind of like leaning into how I how I felt these things like this sounds so like you know like hocus pocus but I just like I wanted to convey how these things felt and the way that I would do that is through different types of edits and I feel like if you you can convey so much through a facial expression or through something flashing across the screen and that way it's more of like an audio visual experience for the watcher the listener whatever um that way they're not just like watching somebody talk about something, but they're able to like see a little bit more beyond that. And those contextual clues really help people, I think, to understand like what it all means a little bit more. So like, rather than just saying, oh, Nickel went up 250%, you can like make a face (laughs) and be like, this is absurd that Nickel is doing that. And that helps to get the message across in such a, you know, short form format. So the evolution of that has just been trial and error and just kind of leaning into, um, how my brain works, I think, and how I see the world, um, which has been like really nice that people uh, align with that to a certain extent. Yeah. So I have a question. I think you probably by a wide range, the youngest guest that uh, Grant has ever had on this podcast. You know, Um, And we, of course, as we were joking before we we turned on the mics that um, it's a mystery to us how this generation thinks. And I'm wondering, one of the things that jumps out about your videos is the speed of the information mm-hmm. and one joke and one quip right on top of another. And, and almost, I find myself having to watch them and enjoying to watch them dozens of times before I sort of catch all of the nuance. Is it equally as fast to the younger generation or is this a unique style to you? Or is this the speed with which sort of the people who grew up in front of a screen consume information? Yeah, I would say I, like just based on the 
polling the audience sort of basis or the audience feedback basis, I definitely get a lot more. Oh my gosh, Kyla, you've got to slow down from um, older <laughs> listeners who might be an older demographic versus <laughs> my younger demographic investors. Uh, so I think, but I think that they do go very fast. Uh, so I think that's just like a, a thing that is a thing. Um, but yeah, so I think that there is sort of this, everybody has a problem with ADHD in, in this generation. Um, so I think that also plays into it too, is you almost, you have to have stuff go really fast or else they're going to scroll away, you know, which is unfortunate. Yeah, you know, it's, it's fascinating, this um, preference for short, snappy content. Yeah, you know, among the younger generations. I mean, and who knew, by the way, that our chicken would date himself as a boomer? I'm pretty sure at some point earlier on he called it Tic Tac. I'm not quite sure if I heard that right, but that, that was the, he did, right? I thought so. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah we'll, we'll have to clean that up and post. No way. No way, boomer. Leave um, it in. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about the feedback because you know building a content business is very much a double-edged sword. You know, it's it's something that it's great fun to do, and you you eventually. You find your audience. I think that's that's been my experience anyway, or, or your audience finds you, one of the two. I think if you go out to try and capture a specific audience, it's it's a difficult thing to do, or certainly that's been my experience. Did you, did you set out to to address this solely to, to the millennial generation, the Zoomer generation, or was this just an expression of, of you and your way of looking at things that eventually found its niche? Yeah, I mean, I think when all of it started, I knew that there was a pretty big gap for, you know, like the, I guess the 20 to 30 year old investor, like in that age range, there's just not a lot of content that's sort of made for them. Like you have platforms like Bloomberg or Financial Times. Well, you have, that's maybe not true. Like you have sort of this content, but everything is like it doesn't exist in sort of like maybe a fun and engaging way. Like I feel like that is still a little bit of, of a gap in the market. Um, so I, I didn't really set out with anybody in mind. I was just like, here's news and information. And if you align with the style, like, yeah, that's great. But I think now it's become increasingly clear that there's a little bit of a, a need for, for this sort of maybe style of content or this way of talking about things for the younger investors. So I wouldn't say that I like sought out to attract that type of person, but I think it's ended up that I, I keep them in mind when I make content. Yeah. So one of the things that I noticed in preparing for this interview and um, going through some of your your prior uh, recordings and, and postings. And, and Lord knows if I go back and read your early Stumberg pieces, I have the same feeling of cringe. And I think every content creator um, has that, that same, uh, you know, you can continue to get better over time. Um, one of the things that I've seen uh, evolve in your content is a um, far higher proportion of humor and character sketches work their way into your content. Um, how did that become? I mean, you, you, I think. I mean, I think you'd have a great career as a professional comedian, to be honest with you. Um, if you if you evolved, um, continue to evolve down this path. But how did how did that evolve? Was it organic? Was it is it something you've always sort of had, sort of a a funny uh, funny way of saying things? Because the videos are, I mean, truly. I mean, I think they're brilliantly hilarious. And so I was just curious how that came about. Uh, yeah. No, I. <laughs> It's kind of funny, like my friends from college are just like, what, what is this, Kyla? Uh, because I've never been, like I'm an introvert. So I'm an INTJ, if you believe in the science that is, or the philosophy, the suite of science that is Myers-Briggs. Um, so this is never really, like this is, it's completely unnatural for me uh, to sort of be, like I would never want to be a comedian because I wouldn't want to be on a stage like that. But I think for me, it's just how my 
brain works. Like, I don't know. I, that's so, such a horrible answer, but, um, the humor, like when you read this stuff, especially right now, like the markets are just so absurd and it's really hard not to, when to sort of zoom out of any emotion or anything horrible that's actually happening because of it, like some of the stuff is like 250% increase in the price of nickel. Like you never would think that that's a sentence that somebody would say out loud. Um, so I think it's just stuff like that. Like the market has made it a little bit simple to have humor around it because it has been so wild. Some of the moves. Yeah. Kyla, like, you know, when I started my career, I'm dating myself here. You know, one one of the first things that I saw up close was the was the Black Monday crash in 1987, mm-hmm. and that having that happen to me, you know, to see a market down 22 percent in a day, has absolutely coloured my entire career. You know, it made me realise what was possible, and it and it and I think it probably elevated my my awareness of risk um, in a very meaningful way. And I've been glad of that in many ways, but in in other ways, it's probably been a hindrance to me because I, I just refuse to get swept up in manias, and so I'm I'm always cautious around manias. When I look at the generation that's the age I was back then, and this is primarily the generation that you're talking to, you know, I will just wonder what they make of what's going on now because I had a couple of years grounding before '87 happened. So I, I had a sense of what markets were like, and then that was all completely upended in a day. And from then on, I was aware of what could happen. Now, if if you've been an investor in the last you know 10 years, for example, you've pretty much seen the opposite. You've seen markets that only go one way. They just go bottom left to top right, and you buy the dip and, and all this crazy stuff. Now, obviously, we're seeing in the last couple of months, we're seeing all kinds of moves like the nickel price. We're seeing all kinds of crazy inflation numbers, crazy natural gas price numbers. We're seeing you know, a, a land war in Europe again. Um, yeah. you, you know, what's been the response of that generation to these events? Is, is it yet more kind of the world seems like a video game or are they bewildered? Are they? I, I'm really curious just to know how, what they make of this. Yeah, I think the point that you made about, you know, buy the dip is that's just what people have relied on because like none of uh, none of this generation has really seen a bear market. Like I think all of us are pretty scarred by growing up through the great recession. Like I mean, I saw my parents go through that. It was it was very hard, but you never kind of think that it would happen again, I guess. And so I think a lot of people don't really know how to respond to the idea that the market goes down. Like when I, I was making, um, I make, I, I've been making content about Russia and Ukraine back since November. Um, and then of course was covering it when the war happened and, and the invasion happened and people are asking me that they should buy the dip on Russian stocks. And so I think there's always this like idea that there's some, like things are always going to go back up and that doesn't always happen. So I think that's really a big worry. And and then a lot of this stuff is just unprecedented. So I, I've gotten a lot of questions on Instagram uh, where it's like, how can I hedge against you know food prices going up 3x because my my income isn't going up 3x. I don't know what to do. And so I think it's a lot of just like big concern about geopolitical events and, and what's going down. And I think that's just across the board. Like every single person, doesn't matter what your age is. But I think for this generation, there's a lot of, um, I think a little bit of anger. I think a little bit of nihilism, just like, okay, like things are always going to suck and it's just going to suck forever. And that's just how it is. And that's a little bit unfortunate because I think that can really hurt how people think about innovation 
and how they think about themselves as sort of like an economic entity and, and sort of this broader, you know, global network. Like they're just like, it doesn't matter. Like I don't matter. And that's concerning. That's something, that's a theme that I think is very concerning. Yeah. So I, maybe we could pivot to some of the things you've been um, creating content around. And one of the things, one of the themes of your work, of course, is in oil and energy and sort of curious, maybe sort of give us the, the viewpoint from you and your generation vis-a-vis ESG and oil and energy. And and I know you produce a lot of content, probably get a lot of questions. Um, what's the view from 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 where you are? Yeah, I think it's also frustration again. Um, there's like a couple of different threads to that, right? So, you know, ESGification is really great in theory. Like it's, oh, ESG, like, yeah, perfect. Companies should focus on being better companies. But because of that, you've had just massive underinvestment in oil companies. And you see this in Europe, right? And, and Europe is so reliant on Russian gas because they said, oh, we're going to go to renewables super quick and we're going to just rely on renewables. And it's like, you can't do that yet because you're not quite ready. So you can have all this green energy you know policy without actually having green energy investment that's kind of the mistake that they they made and, and you're sort of seeing that across the board now where it's we're still so reliant on oil and everyone's like oh electric vehicles will save us like you know it, it's going to be totally okay we're still like oils and everything right and so i think for a younger generation you know from a climate change perspective, you just see this over-reliance on fossil fuels um, potentially like really going to harm our world moving forward. Uh, and it doesn't seem like we're going to be able to wean off of it anytime soon because of poor policy decisions and either the decision to move too fast, like Europe did, or the decision to essentially not move at all, which is sort of how the U.S. is shaping out. Um, and then ESG is just you know, greenwashing to a certain extent. And I'm a little bit opinionated on ESG. I'm not going to like say I speak for every single person on that. I just think it's a, a, an unfortunate tool that has really not helped anything. Yeah. How, how do you, how do you deal with that? Because um, it's interesting when you're, a, when you're a content creator who's trying to build an audience, you know, you have a couple of choices. You have a, a, a choice to cater to the audience and if you want to build a big audience, you have to cater to as many people as you can. And and that necessarily often means kind of pandering, uh, for want of a less evocative word, to to stuff like that and, and having to kind of zip it when you when you're talking about issues that, you know, might be problematic. You know, I I've been fortunate to have built an audience um over a long period of time and and I've because of when I started and, and and, and how the landscape was back then, it was much easier to just build an audience by not having to worry too much about what you said. Ha, ha, has that be, been a problem for you at any point? And if so, where where have those problems surfaced? Um, no, not really. I like I always point out my work into the comment I made a little bit earlier, like not really a creator, like a synthesizer, a curator. Like that's kind of what I try to focus on because um, you know, I do recognize that I'm 24 <laughs> and I have not seen a lot of things. So like my opinion is, you know, it's maybe worth a little bit, but it's it's not going to be that impactful, I think. So I really just try to get people information to help them form their own opinions and to help it be a complement to maybe other resources that they're reading. So I don't make videos where I'm like, oh, I think that, you know, this is a really terrible, horrible policy. Uh, like for the infrastructure bill, for example, like I wasn't like, this is the worst infrastructure bill ever. I was just like, here's the infrastructure bill. Here how Here's how it is going to impact certain things. Here's how it might impact the stock market, the economy, et cetera. 
cetera. So I really do try to remain objective, but you know, I'm human. So I do have opinions to a certain extent, but the audience, um, I think it's helpful to hear the opinions of the people that they're receiving synthesized information from, because then they can maybe, uh, you know, spot any biases that I might have. And, and that's always helpful, I think. So. so. So how do you go about, for example, just this latest nickel video? Um, obviously it's, it's, um, We've done a lot of research on nickel. We're putting out a piece via Doomberg, um, hopefully tomorrow. Oh, good. Um, yeah. We're recording this on um, on Monday. Um, the piece is is actually it's very accurate. It's very funny. Uh, the jokes make sense to me. It's clear that you've done a lot of research in the area. What does your work process look like? I mean, you push you publish videos on so many different topics. Mm. How do you sort of get to the point where you can put out something so brilliant, and so jam packed in such a short period of time? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I read a lot. <laughs> I read a lot and I have people that I, I trust on Twitter mostly that I know if they say something, like it'll probably be true. And then they'll like link different articles. Um, so I, I, I'm pretty good at sort of treasure hunting, I think, for different research papers or figuring out what stuff sort of means at its core. And then once you figure out where all the all the threads are tying, it's a little bit easier to weave a narrative like you would for a story. Um, and so that's what I try to do with the videos is tie everything back to a bigger point. So in the nickel video, right, like it was about nickel, but at the end I was talking about the federal reserve and if they're going to, you know, raise rates. So that's what I try to do is, is how, how do all these things connect? And that's how I think about everything, right? Like everything is intertwined in my brain. So that's how I tie the threads. Yeah. So the, the point of this podcast is to expose our audience to um, content creators a little off the beaten path. And um, we probably have a lot of content creators who listen to the podcast for tips and tricks. And um, we're on our own personal journey at Doomberg to try to um, create our own business doing this as well. One of the things I noticed about you is you're basically on every platform possible. So you mentioned earlier, I think you're on YouTube, you're on Substack, you're on TikTok, you're on uh, Twitter, you're on Instagram, you're probably on platforms I'm not even aware exist. Um, do you worry about being sort of distracted by the need to feed all of those? Um, <laughs> do you ever think about prioritizing one of the platforms? How did you come to decide to have such a proliferated brand ambition as you do? Oh, yeah. So I don't really worry about like, oh, I, who should I focus on or which platform should I focus on more? So the way that I think about content is, so I have this weekly Substack and the weekly Substack gets turned into a YouTube video and that gets clipped for a podcast. So everything kind of gets recycled, not recycled. It gets recycled in a very good way. Uh, not like I'm just reusing content, but that's kind of how I think about that side of production. And then with the TikTok, I really enjoy making the videos. So like it's super fun for me. And I feel like the more videos I make, the better I'll get at it. Um, I would say I post way more on TikTok than I do any other platform. Um, but for me, it's just how can I reach people where they need to be met? Like some people really like learning by TikTok. Like um, there's a lot of people my age that use TikTok as like a Google search engine instead of Googling stuff. And so I want to be there for them. But then some people love reading newsletters. So I want to have content for them. And then some people love watching YouTube. And so I want to have content for them. And then some people just like to listen. And so I have my the podcast version of the YouTube video for them. And so the goal is really, how can I help the audience at every angle that they might need it? Um, and luckily, uh, it hasn't been too, sometimes they're not great at time management, but it, it's been working out okay so far, yeah, with getting everything done. So, 
All right, Kyla, thank you so much for, for doing this. Now, here's the longest part of the show. I need you to tell everybody all the various ways they can uh, <laughs> they can follow your stuff. Because as, as we said at the, at the top of the show, it's a pretty broad palette. But let, let's make sure you give everybody all the information they need to be able to follow you. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so if you just Google me, Kyla Skinlin, it's an uncommon name. So I, I show up first, which is probably uh, either good or bad, depending on how you look at it. Uh, but yeah, I'm on my newsletter is kyla.substack.com. My YouTube channel is just Kyla Skinlin. I'm on TikTok at Kyla Scan, on Instagram at Kyla Scan, on Twitter at Kyla Scan. And then my podcast is called Let's Appreciate if you prefer a podcast audio format. Yeah. Fantastic. Really, really great. I just, I'm amazed that she can remember all of it. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure I forgot something, but yeah, I think that's everything. Oh, and my, my personal domain is kylaskinlin.com where I have all my old writing. So I used to do a lot of stuff on game theory was very, very into data science. So if you like game theory stuff, I have a lot of pieces there on that. Fantastic. Kyla, listen, yeah. thanks so much for joining us and, and good luck with uh, with everything as you go forward. And, and if, if I or the Green Chicken can help you, you know how to find us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, Dumi, I have to say, you know, it's it's fascinating, right? That it, it's, you know, I think we just have such a, a skewed understanding of that generation. You know, it's, it's almost totally alien to us. I mean, we've both got kids. I have one daughter, Kyla's age, who's not interested in finance at all. Uh, although she's becoming much more interested now that it's costing her twice as much to fill her car up with petrol. <laughs> Indeed. No, she's really a fascinating um, and brilliant person. And I must say, um, what I, I have a distinct memory of a decade ago of my daughter coming to me. It feels like a decade ago. Maybe it wasn't quite that long. Saying she, she wanted to be a YouTuber. And I remember saying, oh, you have to get a get a real education and get a real job. And then here we are so many years later cutting our teeth as a content creator ourselves and and understanding that in fact, this is actually a real job and it's not only a real job, it's a, it's a really important one. And this whole decentralization of education and entertainment um, and, and Kyla sort of really has captured the zeitgeist on both. It's, it's really remarkable to watch her grow and, and huge fan of her work and, and thrilled that we were able to have her on. Yeah, it's such an interesting time, as you say, to be an educator because you have you have a, 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 a somewhat arcane subject of investment, which on the one hand is making every attempt it can to be easier and much more straightforward with you know, ETFs and target date funds and all the kind of things that Passive is doing to just make it set and forget. But you're running smack bang into a time where it's arguably not been more complicated to invest than, than we're at right now. There are so many cross currents. There are so many you know, big picture changes happening along with all the micro stuff that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad I have the education in this business that I have because it helps me frame it a little bit, even though it's kind of upending a lot of the things I thought I knew. But um, it's, it's a tough time to be, to be young and inexperienced if you're, if you're in this world. The thing that struck me from our conversation with her and, and as I um, try to shepherd my own children through what I believe is coming is, you know, we've all done this. We've all gone through, as you say, you came of age during the 87 crisis. And for me, it was really, you know, in my early parts of my career during the global financial crisis. And um, the instinct as we get older is to protect our children uh, from this. But in reality, this is how they're shaped. This is how they're formed. And I, I don't, you know, absent thermonuclear war, I, I, I suspect that this will just be another market dislocation that will shape the next generation, will teach them lifelong lessons that hopefully they'll be able to sort of reinvest in themselves on a go-forward basis and make the most of the learnings that they accumulate during these times. And 
And ultimately, you know, that it's kind of like the leaving the nest story once they sort of um, go out into the world that they have to take the good with the bad and learn from both. Well, it's interesting you know, because um, my recollections of, of kids who grew up in the Great Depression, for example, or, or through World War Two, you know, it scarred and coloured their outlook for the rest of their lives. And yet, you know, it's interesting to hear that Kyla talk about um, a generation of grown up watching their parents go through the Great Recession. You know, one would think ordinarily that that would scar them to be cautious and careful and nervous about stuff. And yet it's gone completely the other direction. You know, that generation is now the YOLO generation, the the, the lost porn generation. You know, it's it's it, it really it really fascinates me that they've taken those experiences in 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 the Great Recession and somehow twisted that into a ah to hell with it, right? I mean, what the hell? Instead of a okay, I, I never want to go through that stuff that my parents went through, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be careful, I'm gonna be cautious. It's fascinating to me that. Yeah, the word she used in our podcast, which really stood out to me, was nihilism, which reminded me, of course, of Dimitri's. Dimitri, yeah. Uh, Dimitri coined, I believe, coined the phrase market nihilism. And and I think he was early to tap into that feeling. And, and she sort of captured it in, in the interview, which is um, the YOLO phenomenon, which is if, if, if I have a chance to break out of this, and if I win, I can. And if I don't, I'm still in the same spot. Why not? Um, and that's actually interesting and scary. And um, and really sort of makes you sit back and think about how it is that we got here and what policy changes do we need to sort of get ourselves out of it, if at all. Yeah, if at all. Exactly. I think that's the key point. Well, uh, look, it's been another fascinating conversation, mate. I've thoroughly enjoyed meeting Kyla and, um, and hopefully the audience has too. Uh, you've got all the ways to follow her. They'll be in the transcript as well. All that remains is to thank you for listening and to remind you that if you aren't following us on Twitter, you can do so quite easily. You can find me at TTMYGH. And you can find uh, the Doomberg team over at, at Doomberg T. Um, T stands for team. And uh, yeah, it's been great, Grant, and looking forward to the next one. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.